Hey guys, Jack here. Thank you so much to all of you who listened to our entire 100th episode. Uh, we got quite a few emails. Uh, there was a call to action to email us if you got through the whole episode, and I'm sure not all of you who got there wrote us in, but quite a few of you did, and we really appreciate hearing from you. Uh, it really makes it all worthwhile to connect with you guys. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to meet more of you at one of our upcoming live events in December, uh, December 9th and 10th. We are in New York City, and the following weekend, we are at Live at the Bike. Uh, that's December 16th. Those live events are really the most fun and educational thing that we offer. Uh, we're really, really pumped to be doing two so soon and so close to each other on opposite coasts. Uh, it'll give us an opportunity to connect with you guys out east, out west, and in the middle, uh, you're not too far from either. Uh, for more information about those, please head to our website, justhandspoker.com, or use the link in the show notes. Uh, there you'll learn about what happens at these events, uh, why it's so valuable, and all the other necessary details. So we look forward to seeing some of you guys there. And to the rest of you, thanks again for listening, and enjoy this week's episode. Morning, Jack. Morning. Or, I guess, morning on on the West Coast, just after lunchtime here. How you doing? Doing great. Had a nice early morning walk. Got to know this area a little bit better. And you're enjoying it? Enjoying life. Yeah. Yeah. Have you gotten to play any poker out on the West Coast yet? I have not, but Lucky Chances is having a whole tournament series that starts uh, next week. So I'm probably not going to dock around in the tournaments, but maybe on one of the weekend days, just go to play some cash. It's going to be the move. Yeah, it sounds like a good plan. All right. Well, today I think you said you have a a listener hand that you want to do? Yeah, yeah. We got a really awesome hand just a few days ago from Mike. And he wrote a ton of information, so I figured we'd reward him with a speedy, uh, you know, put him in, putting him right on the podcast, uh, rewarding just a super detailed hand history. Yeah, we uh, we're suckers for pros here at Just Hands, for poker <laughs> hand history pros. That is, yeah. Don't send us your one po- day. It, it might be fun to do just like a, a novel that's just like just us, a <laughs> just like a session with very flowery language around a bunch of hands yeah that'd be a good read if someone someone wants to steal that and do that go ahead i'd love to read it okay so i'm just gonna gonna read it hi zach i'm an amateur player that has been working hard to improve my game studying not only at the table but by the book and the just hands poker podcast good good start (laughs) for the past few months i've had a lot of free time and been playing nearly every day either live or online both tournaments and cash with some session-specific goals in mind and with the overall goal of becoming a better player. Prior to that, I've been averaging two or less live cash sessions a month for about eight months after taking three and a half years off completely. So, yeah. Let's just stop there for a second. I, I, I think the fact that you're just tracking so diligently, you know, how often you're playing is already just a good sign in terms of, you know, aggregating your poker discipline. Because that can be really one of the hardest things, whether as an amateur player or a professional, is not so much the skill of playing poker, but being disciplined in terms of, you know, putting in volume and, you know, playing your best or close to it most of the time you play. Yeah, I think taking a year and a half off alone shows a lot of... uh, Three and a half years. Sorry, sorry, three and a half years off. That shows a lot of discipline. Yeah. So he 
He writes, I'll be 35 in a couple months, but look considerably younger and always dress casually at the table. For the most part, I maintain a pretty tight aggressive image, but sometimes like to loosen up in position. After studying your podcast, Unexploited of Play, I've caught myself successfully bluffing a lot more frequently. Sweet. Sounds like a good, a good strategy for the low limits. He writes, the hand I'd like to share with you takes place at Harris Casino in Joliet, Illinois, one to no limit. It's after midnight on a Thursday, and we're seven-handed into a pretty interesting game. There's three regs in the one, two, and three seats, two of which I've played with once or twice before, and the other I've only seen around. The one seat's an older gentleman who plays, pretty, who plays a pretty straightforward game for a guy who uses a donkey bobblehead as a card protector. Usually the donkey bobblehead or anything kind of that indicates, you know, some physical thing or saying that you're a donkey usually means you're at least not a, a donkey. Pretty reliable tell. Yeah. I think like props at the lower stakes, like uh, actually probably indicates someone who not, not to say that they're going to be good, almost certainly not, but they're probably not going to be so terrible. Yeah, they made the investment to get something. Yeah, they've like they've probably played a lot of poker, which uh, you know can lead to its own set of mistakes. But they're generally not going to be the biggest fish at the lower stakes. So C two seems to be a bit bluffy post flop, likes to donk out. C three is short stacked and playing fairly tight and too passively. So yeah, even though they're they're regs like it, especially at the low stakes, when you're first getting started, it can seem a little intimidating. You know, people that are always talking to each other and feel very comfortable in the casino. But especially at the one-two level, you know, you have nothing to be afraid of. Regular just means they spend a lot of time in a casino. Nothing really to be that envious of. The kid in the four seat is wearing an NC hoodie, who I thought was a fairly solid rec player, until he made a bit of a crying call on the river against me with a counterfeit two pair and showed the loser. Five, seven seats are empty. There's a super aggressive, super loose, mad drunk in the seat six, who's the main villain in the hand. And our hero is to the left in seat eight, and then one player in the nine seat. That's really the the nut seat, since uh, yeah, <laughs> you're on the left of the fish, but you don't have to like smell the drunken breath and such. <laughs> <laughs> um, the villain is about 25 years old with dilated brown eyes. <laughs> He's wearing a black tee and sporting a backwards hawk's cap. He's been ordering Tito's and lemonade for himself and a friend at another table every 20 or so minutes for the past two hours. In that time, I've seen him add on once for 100 and stack off and rebuy for the full 200 twice. He's in the game for at least 700, but winning it back quickly. He busted me an hour earlier with 6-3 offsuit against pocket fives in the small blind on a 2-3-4-3-6 rainbow run out. He's been playing 90% of hands and raising preflop almost 100% of those. Yeah, definitely the nut seat. A lot of yeah. these hands are going to go down <laughs> as he is in pretty control of a lot of small action posts. I've seen him limp and turn over Broadway cards and win a few times. His standard raise is 12 to 15, but his high is 20 to 25, but only when he or the nine seat straddles. The villain has been straddling five, both under the gun and on the button, and the nine seat $4 under the gun nearly every orbit. The villain's $12 to $15 range seems to be with a lot of gap cards and some connectors. He doesn't seem to care whether they're suited or not. I've seen him turn over a lot of hands like 10-9, 10-8, 10-7, 9-7 on fairly desirable boards for his hands. 
He's made some straights and seems to be running fairly well. So, yeah, it seems like this villain, while very drunk, very loose, isn't just a total donkey. And there's a, a lot of people like this. And maybe even one day I, I could be one of these on, on rare occasion if I ever get very intoxicated and go to the casino, where you kind of have a, you know, probably above average understanding of, you know, post flop poker principles and just really like putting, you know, pressure on people who aren't really comfortable losing the money they have in front of them at the 1 2 level and then just playing every hand. So it's definitely a player we want to be playing with. But it's not like this guy is just literally giving it away. Yeah, that sounds possible. But yeah, definitely, it sounds like we can probably be really aggressive against this player preflop with like a merge value range. Because I'm not sure he's going to fold that many of the garbage hands he's opening. But if we can get them to put more money in the pot, preflop, especially in position, where we're probably mostly going to have at least till the turn to realize some of our equity, then that sounds like a nice way to print some money this game, isolating this guy. Yep. So now finally, on to the hand. In this particular hand, the hero, me, who is in, into the game for 400, has about 480 in front of him. Just stopping right there, while it's always good to keep track of how much you're in the game for, I do find, especially with newer players to the game, it can... You don't want to necessarily always remember and keep at the top of your head how much you're in the game for. Really just try to think about, you know, how much you have in front of you. And if that's an amount you're not comfortable losing, then, you know, get it from the table. Because it's definitely easy to, when, when you think how much you're in for, to then have that influence your decision making in terms of being a little risk averse. And spots maybe you otherwise wouldn't if you have 480 in front of you, but you're in for 150. Yeah, it's a hard lesson to learn that, uh, you know, the life of a poker player is really just one long session. And it's really hard to divorce yourself from, like, the results of the immediate session. But the better you can do that, probably the better it will be for your game. Yep. So there's a couple lips early. Looks like from the regs. The villain makes it, the villain makes it 12 in the cutoff. And our hero looks down at two queens on the button. As our hero reaches for chips, the villain comments, I know he's calling, which our hero <laughs> finds odd as he's been sacrificing a lot of blinds in the past silver orbits while attempting to save an arm and a leg in the straddle war that's been ensuing on the felt to either side of him. <laughs> Wait, read that again. That's <laughs> which our hero finds a little odd as, be as he's been sacrificing a lot of blinds in the past several orbits while attempting to save an arm and a leg in the straddle war that's been ensuing on the felt to either side of him. So our hero, our hero has been attempting to save an arm and a leg. Yes. Hmm. Okay. And this is a war that's recently escalated to words above the felt. Our hero has been enjoying the show. Sounds like an enjoyable show to me. <laughs> the villain looks slightly surprised, but predictably ready for action when our hero cuts out 35 and tosses it into the pot. So I'm just going to... You know, I have no proof of this, but I'm just going to say that our hero has not been three-betting this villain enough. That's my hunch. If if the villain was very certain that you were going to call when you're reaching for chips, it sounds like you're not three-betting enough. So maybe you've just had, like, a hand like fives, sure, that's not a hand I'm necessarily three-betting, since it is not a hand that will tell you very much information about how you're doing. 
against your opponent's specific hand. And that's, you know, very valuable information at the poker table if you can get it. But, yeah, definitely it sounds like you should be 3-bidding more. Yeah, and in terms of sizing here, like 35 is a 5 sizing to use if you're 3-bidding him a ton. But just exploitatively, like, it's really hard for me to imagine he's folding to, like, I guess 40. We, we really just want to, against a player like this, it's less about, like, getting more money from some of his range and just, like, ensuring he calls with his incredibly wide range. So I guess a lower sizing is, is better. I'd probably prefer 40 uh, because I, it's hard to imagine that someone doesn't call for just one more green chip. What do you think of this? I think the sizing is fine because I, I do think, like, I actually personally think if we haven't been 3 betting this player very much, you know, your read on him based on the description was that he had some poker knowledge and was just, you know, choosing to play extremely loosely. I think, like, if you have some poker knowledge and you're getting 3-bet for the first time after you've been opening a ton, like, you're not going to be too attached to, like, the 9-7 offsuits and such. The action folds around to the villain who quickly falls. It's heads up, going to the flop with 75 in the pot, minus the rake. The villain looks over at the hero as the dealer rolls the flop and announces he checks, effectively checking dark, then quickly looking back at the board, which is the king, 10-5, with two clubs. Do we have the queen of clubs? Do you remember? Do we know? Uh, let's check. No. We do not know. Yeah. So, if you had the queen of clubs... Oh, no, 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 no. He, he, Sorry, he, he says later in it. He does not have the queen of clubs. Okay. Then I think it's a little closer, but I'm still probably checking. I think with the queen of clubs, I'm for sure checking. And here, I just think against this type of villain, this is going to be a much more profitable bluff catcher than a value bet here. We don't, f I think, benefit very much from folded equity. You know, we're blocking some of the draws that, you know, probably wouldn't fold, but we'd be happy to see them fold. And really the only the only cards we really would potentially get to fold that we would want to fold would be an ace. And so while I think that we could get some value from tens, I think there's too many kings and one, there's a good amount of kings. And two, I think that we'll get a lot of value from the whiffs if we check here. Yep, I agree. This is kind of, you know, one of our most ideal check back, you know, bluff catch, one or two street type hands. So I think we should surely be be checking back. So the hero thinks for about two seconds and bets 75%. Sorry, bets $75, uh, which is the pot. Our villain takes four seconds and check raises all in. So... Yeah. Even though this player is very, very loose, you know, a lot of players like this, again, with some type of post-flop, you know, post-flop knowledge are able to, you know, get close to max value in spots when they have good hands, given their image. So it wouldn't surprise me if this villain is, you know, very value-heavy here. It also wouldn't surprise me if this guy will do this with any draw because he thinks the other guy is not going to call his whole stack. So, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, honestly, honestly, I'm seeing this as a probably, 
Probably a very bluff-heavy bet. Because I think... So let's let's go into our villain's head for a moment. I think, you know, what are, what's the range of hands that he probably expects us to have pre-flop? He's probably thinking, like, jacks plus ace-king, you know? I don't think he necessarily thinks that, like, based on... Based on everything I know, that's what I would guess he would think you'd have. And against that range, I don't think he's shoving, like, a shitty king for value. So I think the idea of thin value here is not super likely. Especially since I don't think he would think that you would call with, like, queens and jacks. I think, like, the type of player... A player who's, like, expects to get a lot of folds isn't going to go for, you know, thin value against you with, like, queens or jacks, you know? You know what I mean? I understand what you're saying, but I'm just going to push back and be like, this guy's really drunk and he flopped a king. So I think there's like some chance. It's it's hard it's hard to say. Again, that goes a little bit against like post-flop knowledge thing. But we just don't have that much information. So I, I think based on this guy's description, I'm leaning towards that he's not doing that that much. But I think there's definitely at least like a 15, 20% of the chance time that he raised calls with like any suited king and like, maybe kings down to, like, king nine, and then flops a king and just decides to go with it. That's fair. I I think I'm underestimating the drunkness factor, which <laughs> definitely, like, I think would suggest maybe more thin value. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big bet, so I think we can definitely, like, pretty comfortably fold. I think, I think against a slightly different player type, I would like a call. I think against a lot of like very aggro players who are maybe slightly less drunk and a little bit more lucid and thinking about the game somewhat, especially like a, how they're used to thinking against low stakes players, I think this could be very bluff heavy. Because there's really not that many like value hands. And if this guy's playing a ton of hands, it's more likely he has some really bad hand than a really good hand here. But I agree with you that, like, the drunken factor and the fact that he might just, like, go with a king <laughs> makes me, uh, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable folding this. Where I, I would have, like, for sure three-bet king-queen offsuit here and would be totally happy, like, betting pot and going with it here with king-queen offsuit. Yeah. And, I, and that makes, you make a good point, Jack. Like, if we were 100 big wines deep... I'm not folding my pair of queens against this player. But this is a really big bet, so we don't have to defend that much, and we're going to have much better hands to defend with than uh, pocket queens. So it's a spot that we really wanted to avoid, but, you know, we got into it, and now we have to, I think, make a pretty clear fold. I also... We already said we liked a a check back on the flop, but I will say that, like... If you are going to bet, I definitely would not choose a pot-sized bet for a sizing. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think a smaller bet will be a lot better. Like, I th- When we make this bet, if our villain folds a hand like, you know, 9-10, that's really not good. Mm-hmm. That makes the value of this bet basically... Like, you know, that we're not getting any value. So we're only getting called by worse and we're getting like some protection against hands that were unlikely to beat us in the first place. And I think like yep. 
you could say one like is this guy gonna fold second pair probably not but like when we three bet for like perhaps the first time and and just to mike like you might have been three betting this guy a lot i don't have like hard evidence that you haven't so if if you have been three betting a lot then some of this advice maybe doesn't apply but you know so i'm just i guess i'm reading into the situation a little bit more but let's say that this was one of the first times you three bet him like even like a drunk aggro maniac is going to look down a second pair after you get three bet and then like someone bets pot into you on like a king high board and like i don't think 10 9 is looking so great yeah again it's a lot of like you know so how much of this is you know the guy is just crazy drunk and doing insane stuff and how much of this guy is you know drunk but putting on a big act and never going to do anything super crazy usually i think it you know based on the description it's going to be more the latter but it's just really hard to really hard to know and even if i was there you know it's going to be hard hard to know certainly um you know, how to range this player without seeing more show notes. Mm-hmm. So here decides to make a big laydown. What do you guys think? Was this a horrible fold or a live to fight another day in desirable spot type situation? I think we basically answered this. It's live to fight another day, but kind of knowing that we got ourselves into a pretty undesirable spot by, you know, betting with a good, you know, a really good checking back candidate and then choosing a sizing that just doesn't really accomplish kind of what, what we would want to accomplish if we were betting, you know, a hand like Queens for thin value. And and I want to push back a little bit on the live to fight another day notion. To me, live to fight another day sounds like we're taking sort of like a neutral or slightly plus EV spot, or sorry, passing on a neutral or slightly plus EV spot. Or I guess a slightly plus EV because a neutral V spot, you know, they're right. Okay, but the slightly plus EV spot, because we want to reduce our variance. And I don't see this as necessarily like a slightly plus EV spot. I think like this is more just just plain a fold. Yeah. Based on the fact that we think that there's a reasonable possibility that this player could have a ton of kings here. So, so yeah. There are some spots where living to fight another day makes sense, but I think like that sort of thinking is actually rooted in maybe some not great tendencies. That's all. That's all I'll say. Yeah. And yeah, and even if he doesn't have a ton of kings, when it's a bet this big, he just has to have kings some of the time. Which, you know, based on information, we we can't roll that out. But yeah, I mean, really, really great thinking in this hand. He does write in kind of the results. The villain did show his hand. Should we reveal? Yeah, we should definitely reveal. So villain offers a free show. Uh, Our hero writes, I never ask someone to show their hand when I fold, and I'm not sure I want to see. But then the nine seat quickly urges me to say yes. In general, you always want to see someone's hand, and you should always try to encourage someone to show their hand. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's something I do a lot, and it's, you know, you don't get to a ton of showdowns naturally, so if you could convince people to show you their hands, it will tell you a lot. And also just understanding, like, if you ask someone to show their hand, the way they react to that can also tell you a lot after you get used to it. Uh, so it is something to consider if you're kind of comfortable being a little social at the table. The villain says it's up to me. Kiro says yes, and he proudly flips over the A7 of clubs. 
So this doesn't really tell us that much, you know, because he shoved with a nut flush draw. And, you know, shoving with a nut flush draw and, you know, maybe, like, king-queen plus and, like, some combos of, like, queen-jack offsuit, like, that's still a range that is going to be ahead of pocket queens and will, you know, make the correct decision still be to fold. So this, while it's frustrating to see a hand that, you know, you're, you're a little bit ahead of, or at least, you know, have the right pot odds to call with, this doesn't really reveal that much. What would be more revealing is if we saw, like, king-jack offsuit, or if we saw a hand, like, six-seven of clubs. Because if, if he's check-raising kind of all of his flush draws, or even kind of all of the combo draws with gut shots, given, you know, it's a king-10-5 board, or I guess it's not a gut shot, but... Yeah, if, 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 if he's shoving all, all flush draws or many flush draws here, then that reveals, oh, okay, we can, you know, maybe against future spots against this player, safely bet to induce with kind of like a much wider value range. I still probably wouldn't put queens in that value range, but then maybe it means like, okay, next time the move is if we have, you know, king, jack, offsuit plus, we bet... $50 or king-queen off plus, we bet $50 and kind of bet call it off or bet get it in. Yeah. Not much to add here. Yeah, thanks for a great hand. And at the end, he, he writes, you know, just in general, uh, you know, how to, how to work on your game for someone that's improving. I mean, it seems like you're doing a lot of great stuff. You're, you're reading books. You're checking out our podcast. I, I would say really just try to do active learning. And that's something when I'm working with students that is the hardest hardest thing because doing active learning takes like your, your full focus. It's not, you know, listening to podcasts while driving or, you know, watching videos while eating. That's definitely more helpful than doing nothing. But doing, you know, range analysis, reading the mental game of poker and doing, you know, exercises to think to combat why you're tilting it, it's stuff like that where you're dedicating your full attention to it uh, for, you know, periods of, let's say, 30 to 60 minutes. That's where you're really going to make your biggest strides. So I personally do a lot of passive consumption of poker content between doing the stuff for the Just Hands podcast as well as, you know, listening to all my other favorite ones and some vlogs. But I don't really consider that poker study. That's kind of more like poker entertainment that sometimes you know makes me think about poker in a good strategic way especially with the thinking poker podcast but yeah when it when it comes to really studying i would you know check out our podcast breakdowns it's kind of a model of how to break down some hands you've played and you know do that type of work i'll shamelessly plug some of uh if you're looking for a little assistance you could always check out our membership program we have two events coming up on both coasts in december uh, and we do private coaching. So, you know, if you're feeling like you're not sure how to take the next step, all of those things can be a big help. Uh, and some of them, especially the live events, are a ton of fun. So, yeah, check those out, justhandspoker.com. Uh, but, yeah, thank you so much for writing in. And thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll see you next week.